Welcome back everyone to Aspire to Lead, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua double underscore Stamper. Welcome back, Aspire Leaders, to a wonderful guest, one that's been on the podcast. I don't know, Evan, you might be the, the winner here of being on the podcast the most of any other guest. He is amazing. He is leading out in Virginia as a principal and has a brand new book out with Corwin called Aiming High. And I can't wait to dive into this topic. Evan, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Josh, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. And, you know, I have, I have to, I'd have to think about that, how many times I've been on your podcast. Um, it's kind of like Saturday Night Live. Like <laughs> if they've hosted it a certain amount of time, you get like a certain status. Yes. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm waiting. You know, maybe we'll figure that out. I think they get a jacket on that on that yeah, show they now. So, do. Yeah, so I'll, I'll like, be sending that in the mail. It'll yeah, be uh... Aspire T-shirt. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. But, hey, I really appreciate the opportunity to get together, the opportunity to have a conversation. Uh, as you know... Uh, I am a huge fan of your podcast, and you know I share your podcast every opportunity that I have, uh, whether it's on social media, but also with uh, people that I work with, uh, because it is an just a wonderful way to instantly access professional development uh, on demand, 100% free, anytime that you want it. Um, you've interviewed several hundred people now, I believe, and uh, again, I'm just excited to be here today. So thanks. You are actually episode 192, so yeah, I'm almost getting to 200 episodes of, and that's just the interviews. Uh, thankfully, I've had some you know, other bonus materials and had a chance to work with Jeff Gargis doing the Aspire Mailbag and then working with Sarah Johnson with the Aspire to Lead episodes also. So yeah, a lot of fun, and it's always a great time to, to speak with you. Evan, for those who potentially you know are hitting the podcast for the first time and they don't know about your background, do you mind just sharing a little bit about yourself? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, I started in education almost 30 years ago as a um, language arts teacher and um, was a language arts teacher, a history teacher, uh, team leader, department chair, and um, was fortunate to um, be able to get an administrative job uh, in the late 1990s and uh, moved into the principal position and was been fortunate to stay in the principal position ever since. I really did not, and I certainly don't have anything negative about people that aspire, um, pun, no pun there, uh, to uh, move into uh, central office positions, but it wasn't for me. I've always been very happy being at the building level, and I am completing my 24th year as a building level principal. Wow. And, yeah, it's great. And, you know, and along the way, you know, I've been fortunate to uh, meet a lot of nice people through social media, you of course being one of them, and uh, you know, have opportunities to write a few books and opportunities to speak a little bit and do a, do a TEDx talk. Uh, so really nice, some nice opportunities that, that have come my way, but it's really because of the excellent people that I've met uh, and the support and encouragement that I've had along the way. Evan, what number book is this? Because I feel like every year I, I feel like you have another text out there. Yeah, this is number five. Wow. Yeah. Congrats. I've written five. Thank you very much. Every time I write a book, I say I'm not writing another book. <laughs> and, then I, and then I write another book. I, I totally understand that after going through Aspire to Lead. I, I definitely understand that. But I, I don't know about you, but I'm starting to get the itch again. So is that how it is for you? You go through the writing process and then feel like I'm getting the itch to do it again? Yeah, it, it is. It is a little bit. I mean, for me, it's very hard for me to write if I don't feel that I have something that I need to say. Mm -hmm. So the itch kind of comes in tandem with 
getting an idea or having something in my mind that that I think might be helpful to other people, uh, and that gets me motivated to to sit down and think about framing up a book and start writing again. So I don't fully have that itch right now, but I can say that it it always revisits, and and (laughs) I'm sure it'll happen here at some point soon. Uh, You know, I'm a huge fan of your book. Uh, Loved reading your book, actually. Thank you. and look forward. So if you've got the itch, that's great. So you can take the baton there and I'll look forward to reading your work when, when it comes out. Well, I want to dive into your brand new book, Aiming High. You know, I got a little glimpse of this text before it came out and absolutely love the book. And if you don't mind, I'd love to start digging into some of the chapters. Yeah, we can do whatever you like. Thank you. Awesome. So first part or first topic was redefining instructional leadership. And this is a topic that I've been really interested in lately, probably the last couple months, because I'll give him a shout out. Danny Bauer uh, sent out a newsletter that I've subscribed to, um, Better Leaders, Better Schools. And he had a news clipping of instructional leadership. And it said that principals only are in the classroom on average 12% of the school year. And I started to think about it and started to kind of reflect on my own practices. And I was thinking, yeah, I would love to be in the classroom as much as possible. But when I started to really think about it, I was thinking that I was probably less than 12% this last school year. And I, I, I'm curious on just what you think the the role of the instructional leader should be at the principal level or the assistant principal level. And how do we kind of fix what the current model looks like if 12% is really the, the average in, in the nation? Yeah, I think that, you know, I speak to a lot of administrators. I know you do, you do too. And I've never met anyone who says, hey, you know, I only want to be in a classroom 5% of the time. Right. I mean, everyone wants to be in the classroom more. The problems that you run into is is the job is unpredictable. Yep. And sometimes with the best intentions, you, know, you can come in with uh, saying, hey, I'm going to be in classrooms today, and then something comes up and you're not able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that I find that I'm in classrooms more if I intentionally put into my calendar you know, specific notations that I need to be in classrooms on these days. Because otherwise, it, it really can slip away. And I think the other thing, is, as you dive deeper into that, is what does it mean to be in a classroom? So does it mean, you know, having your hands in your pocket and standing in the back of the room and grinning like a Cheshire cat and then uh, walking out? Or does it mean that you're in there, you know, and I'm just giving one obviously extreme example there on the left side, but, you know, on the other side, does it mean going into classrooms with some intentionality? So intentionality that can be born out of initiatives that the school is focused on or particular uh, objectives that a team may be working on. So there's an opportunity to provide feedback and give some good specific praise and potentially ask some questions about things also. So I think it's like it's getting into classrooms and it's getting into classrooms with some intentionality, but also intentionality that the people that you're observing know why that know why you're in the room. And you and I have talked about this before, but especially if a new principal, if a new principal just is in classrooms and no one has any idea why they're in the classrooms and there's no follow-up after that, that can be born out of good intentions, but it can hurt trust and relationships within the building uh, and actually cause harm, even though a person you know, might be thinking that they're doing something that's good. You know, and I think the other piece that's important, and, and I know we've talked about this too, Josh, is... I, you know, I think it's nice to get in the classrooms and actually get involved. So learning alongside, you know, with, with the kids, you know, if kids are doing a science experiment, partaking in that with them, 
or if kids are doing, uh, you know, reading activity, partaking in that, so kids can see that, you know, that you're, as an administrator, you know, interested in their learning also. I think it sends a strong message. So you also talk about, in this chapter, about leading a learning community, and then also in another chapter, you talk about supporting students and staff through professional development. So I think this is such a huge topic for our leaders that are listening, because as you know, there are a lot of jokes about the staff meetings and how, you know, don't ask a question at the end of the staff meeting because you don't want to be there any longer and you want to run out of the building as quickly as possible. And I'm just wondering, what are some things that you've done within your own experience as a a principal to lead learning communities, but then also create professional development that's going to be beneficial where the staff wants to stay to learn? That's a great question. I mean, I think that there's a weird dichotomy that exists sometimes in schools between uh, what what administrators or school leaders want to see in classrooms in terms of, uh, you know, engaging, innovative, whatever word you want to um, put to it, uh, instruction and learning environments, and what it looks like when the administrators are working with teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and often it's very different. Now, I would argue, and I argue in the book, that whatever the administrators expect uh, to occur within the classroom, they should be modeling that when they work with teachers in faculty meetings or other types of committee experiences that they have. And one of the things that we like to see in classrooms is, you know, we want to see voice, we want to see choice, we want uh, learning to be relevant. And when those things occur, kids are more likely to engage in learning, they're more likely to learn. So the same thing with professional development, and we can go down that road a little bit. If staff see relevance in professional learning, if they think that it may make their life a little easier, if they think that it will improve learning for kids, they're probably a lot more likely to be a part of that because they're going to be committed to it. And you can't mandate good professional development. You know, you can make people do things and they'll sit and they'll they'll get their points if they're doing recertification points or, or things like that. Uh, but you don't have any ability to make adults care about something. And you really don't have a high ability to make kids care about things either. Uh, they need to be committed to something and they need to want to be a part of it. Now, I would say that effective schools, really effective schools, have a, a high degree of collective efficacy within the building and within the actual school division. So that's the belief that you know everyone's kind of pulling in the same direction, that everyone believes that if they work effectively and follow best practice, there's a very high likelihood that all kids can find success. If people are believing that, they will in turn be interested in professional learning if it's relevant to them, because it's going to help sustain uh, their personal sense of efficacy that they can make a difference for kids. The best professional learning is is ongoing. So it's it's relevant, it means something to the people that are receiving it, and it is something that is catered to them and continues throughout the year. That's not a lot different than what I would say about what's good personalization of learning within a classroom. It's going to be relevant for kids. It's going to be something that's ongoing and something that they'll tap into, you know, as they move throughout the year. The worst, again, you know, so on on the flip side of that, you know, where it goes wrong is just the mandating of things and the initiatives that don't mean anything to Mm -hmm. anyone. When that happens, people get pessimistic or they get sarcastic you know here we go again this too shall pass and we've heard all of those things sure and they they've always existed in schools and they still do but i think when it's done with some good intentionality and it's modeled well by the administrators i think really good things can happen in schools Mm -hmm. yeah i totally agree the the compliance piece versus finding value within the topic that you're learning 
Yeah, it's pretty powerful, mm-hmm. and you know, and, and it exists a lot, and it exists in different ways. You know, so I mean, there there's classrooms, um, obviously not in your school, not in my school, uh, <laughs> where educators may believe that uh, they can demand compliance from kids by threatening to fail them, yeah, or or giving them zeros, and all that will do is uh, turn kids off. And you know, middle school it tends to increase. It either it either encourages kids to completely disengage and fade away in the woodwork, or to act out. You know, and and that can uh, be, you know, an igniter to, to more behavioral challenges that that exist with, within a building. Yep. Well, that kind of leads me to the next topic because, you know, when you're talking about students and you know the compliance piece and, and potentially turning them off, you know, the the other chapter I want to talk about was building trust and relationships. And I love this chapter because you actually break it down into two sections. You've got into the connecting piece and then you've got the coaching piece. But then you don't stop there. You talk about the the connection with students, the connections with teachers and families, but then also the coaching piece. And I thought that was a really fun way to present that because. You know, I, I think of certain topics of, as far as coaching students. That's that's easy. We do that every day as an administrator due to their decision making. Same with teachers, but I I didn't think of coaching as far as families. So obviously, families are such a huge part of a school community. You know, what are you doing to connect with families within your school? But then also, how are you coaching them? Also, well, you know, thank you for for your words. First of all, I think sometimes, and I felt throughout my career, you know, there there's certain things that educators or I at times have been, you know, presumptive about. Mm -hmm. So presumptions can, can, some simple ones are, you know, like all kids like know how to take notes. Like, you know, the teacher who's like frustrated, kids aren't taking notes. Like, I don't understand. And you're like, well, have you taught them how to take notes? No. (laughs) Some kids are very good at organizing information naturally or intuitively. Some, you know, some kids are not, Um, you know, studying, you know, no one studies for the test. Okay. But have, have you taught them some strategies of how to study? And, you know, sometimes the, the, the answer is no. Uh, so the same thing with families, you know, you don't have to pass a test to have a child. And uh, you don't have to go take a course to have a kid. I've never, you know, I've been a principal for a long time. Like, I don't find parents who are like, hey, you know, my goal is to be really bad. Like, I want to mm-hmm. be like a really bad parent. Nope. Um, Any more than I don't find teachers who say things like, hey, you know, every day I come in into work and... I'm setting the bar low. Like I want to be like, you know, I want to be bad. You know, there's there's 40 people in this building. There's going to be one who's number one, and there's someone who's number 40. And damn it, I want to be number four. <laughs> like, like no one no one does that. No. And so with parents, what what I have found is we have a role to help them understand some things that are very important that they can support at home, and we need to help explain that to them, not in education ease, but in a way that's relevant to them and that makes sense. And so reading is a really good example. Kids need to read. And, you know, we can move past all of the programs that are in schools, you know, guided reading and, um, you know, universal screeners and closed reading activities, all these things that schools do. But at the end of the day, you know, I think Richard Allington said it best, for kids to become better readers, they need to read. Mm-hmm. But what happens sometimes with families is, you know, they get busy and there's a lot of things that are competing with time. So... I think it's important for schools to, you know, I got back to school night as a good example, yep. uh, to be able to share information with families on the importance of independent reading, mm-hmm. on how independent reading can make a difference. There's some really powerful statistics on that. Suggestions on a reading, having reading time at home. And you're not watching TV or playing games, but everyone's reading. You know, how do you talk to your child about a book? Um, what's a good book for your child? Like, how do you help them find a book that's relevant to them? Um, how can you, you know, 
how can you develop them as a reader? Because mm -hmm. if kids become better readers, they're going to become more successful in school. Oh, for so sure. I think that's, and that's a really good way to partner with families. Because sometimes in schools, you, we push a lot of stuff out. So you push out your newsletter, you push out your, your messengers to families. But engaging in the conversation where you have people at a back-to-school night and say, you know what, we're going to talk tonight on the importance of independent reading. And uh, you know, not to make you feel bad if you're not doing enough of that home, but to help elevate your understanding of the importance of this and give some really good strategies of how we can partner you know, between the school, the teacher, and you, you, the parent, to get kids more engaged in reading because it makes a difference. And here's some statistics to kind of show you what that means. And I would, I would make those nice and simple, easy to understand so people could see some relevance to that. Yeah. And I want to expand on that topic because, you know, you do have a chapter called Leading for Literacy. And obviously, you know, that's a huge piece within your values as a principal. I know you've had multiple books talking about how important it is for students to read. And I mean, I think that's such a powerful message from day one to, to talk with your families about. But what are you doing within your campus to help students understand you know, the power of reading and, and how that can help them in, in all of their classes and really their life? You know, one of the things that my faculty actually did was, so when we started having these discussions that you know, some just basic presumptions that everyone was agreeing on, like, does everyone think kids need to read more? Yes, like everyone's going to say yes to that. But the question is, is how do you find time to do that? Now, it would be pretty silly, in, in my opinion, for any school to believe that, you know, if you're telling all your kids to go home and read 20 minutes a night, that it's like it's happening. Um, it will happen typically with the kids that um, that really love reading and other right. kids will probably find reasons to not engage to not engage in reading. Uh, and then you can amp it up and make it even worse and say that, you know, every time you read, you got to do your reading log or you got to do got to bar dad's box shoebox and make a diorama. Uh, and that'll really turn kids off of reading. So. What my staff did was we looked at our schedule. We were on the AB alternating block schedule. We had 90 minute, 90 minute blocks within the building. And since everyone kind of agreed with my, my statement there, take about six minutes off of each block and cut those 90 minute blocks down to 84 minutes and create a micro block, um, in the case of our building, between first and third block of about 25 minutes, where all kids are engaged in independent reading every day. And they're not only engaged, but the teachers are engaged in independent reading because it's actually a really good thing for teachers to be reading alongside of kids in their classroom. Yep. Uh, and then in order to support that, we really looked at our budget and looked at funding, worked with our librarian and works with several different publishing companies to purchase more and more classroom libraries and books for our library to make sure that we're bringing in books that have uh, varied reading, reading ability ranges but also books that kids find relevant. Kids are more likely to read a book if they see themselves in a character or if it's something that relates to them. You know, I, I can't make every kid in my building read Old Yeller. Um, and I'm not knocking Old Yeller. It's a good book and it was a good movie. It made me cry when I saw the movie. Uh, but we, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't have Old Yeller in school libraries, but we need <laughs> other books also. For sure. That, uh, you know, that are relevant to kids that they can connect to. Yeah which is another piece of what you wrote about, which is books create access and equity. And I thought that was an interesting topic and one that I think is something that we all need to review on our campus is, you know, does all of our students have access to all educational material that they need to be successful? Or like you said, uh, things, material books that represent themselves. 
Yeah, it's a, it's an important question to ask, and I think that there's some real delineations based off of um, the economy of families when it comes to that. You know, things are things are expensive. It's, mm-hmm. it's expensive nowadays, and yep. so the luxury of a family being able to spend a lot of money on books, uh, if they're worried about putting food on the table, or paying rent, or or making ends meet, is not really high. So there can be some real disadvantages between families that have means and families that don't have means. So the school becomes the, uh, the, the ability, you know, the, the source to level that playing field. Uh, and that means that we have to look at budgets and we have to have books available for kids. Uh, and we have to have, uh, you know, kids have a lot of exposure to books mm-hmm. dur- during the day. You know, and what I would say, and you and I have not talked about this, but when I was in grad school, I was really impacted by Jonathan Kozel's book, uh, Savage Inequalities. And so, you know, for anyone who hasn't read the book, I'd recommend it. It speaks about the inequities in public education across America all along um, economics and uh, the advantages of people that live in certain zip codes and the access that they have, the disadvantages of people uh, that come from poverty or that live in generation poverty, and in many cases, you know, the lack of access that that they have now what i have seen is during the pandemic you know i've seen those things even increase even more yeah uh, so we had more and more kids that were disengaging and and disconnecting from education uh, but we also had kids who um, who were very engaged because their families had structures at home or one parent was at home all the time uh, and was able to provide you know a, a tremendous amount of support for their kids so it's not only this you know the economic disparities that have existed between wealthy and and um, people that that do not have that level of means but it's been you know it's it's been made much larger by the you know the isolation that many kids um, had experienced during the pandemic and the lack of learning that occurred Um, and also on the other end the highly catered learning that some some kids received when they were connected to families just by the luck of choosing the right parents, right? Which of course you can't do. Uh, And uh, that creates just different advantages for them. So the school needs to take a really good look at access and equity at um, cultural diversity. And um, you know, what is the school doing to know the kids that are in the building and and to meet their needs? Yeah. I love it. Evan, I'll have to check that book out. So I'll definitely be reading that. And um, I can even link that in the show notes for our listeners. Yeah, that book was written many years ago, but it still is incredibly relevant and, mm-hmm. and maybe even more so right now. I mean, it's, it's a powerful message. It's a message that I think educators should think about. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. This book started off talking about the pandemic and how you had some reflections on you as a leader and how you wanted to redefine a lot of different things uh, to make schools successful and leaders successful. So I'm curious on, you know, now that we've gone through two really difficult school years, what was one thing that you learned the most to enhance your leadership skills? That's a really good question. You know, I think that it's not so much learned, it was more reaffirmed. I reaffirmed within myself that uh, I can't carry the responsibility of feeling like I need to know everything mm. and I need to have an answer to everything. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, if I can get my really good people around me and we can problem solve and work together, um, we can do some pretty amazing things. And, you know, there, there were a lot of people that when the pandemic started, you know, they would say things like, well, you know, I didn't go to graduate school to like 
learn how to manage a pandemic. I don't know how to do that. And, and of course, I didn't either. But I think what you realize, you know, a couple years later is we didn't need to. Um, you just have to kind of go back to the core things that really uh, define good leadership. Yep. Um, communication, collaboration, you know, being a good listener, uh, working with your team, sourcing your team, and, uh, you know, extending grace, extending compassion, uh, being optimistic, being positive, you know, all of those things uh, that we did learn in school and that they work. And, and in retrospect, they work quite well during really challenging times. Reaffirms the essential skills that we need to teach our students every day. 100%. So check out Evan's new book, Aiming High. Phenomenal book. I, I'm holding it in my hands as we speak. Phenomenal text, like I said. So I'll have that in the show notes for everyone to check out. Definitely a lot of action steps in there, a lot of tips, a lot of wisdom and resource for you, uh, for any aspiring and current leader. And so Evan, how can our listeners connect with you on social media? Thanks, Josh. Thank you for your kind words. Uh, you can connect with me on Twitter at erobprincipal. And also, if you just put in Evan Rob, you can easily find me on LinkedIn and on Facebook also. Uh, I haven't delved into the Instagram world, and Josh, you remind me of that frequently. <laughs> maybe eventually. Maybe eventually I That's will. That's my one goal, Evan. One goal. <laughs> Get on Instagram. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. But I, you know, I, I love to connect with people. And one thing that I can say is... Connecting on social media has allowed me to meet people that, that I would never normally meet. And so I love meeting people. I love connecting with people. And to anyone who's listening to this, who's thinking, well, you know, I don't know. Should I do that? You know, my feeling is absolutely dive in. Um, it's perfectly fine and perfectly safe. Just, you know, make the decisions that are right for you professionally, protect your reputation yep. and connect with people that you're interested in. Yeah. Life changer with the expanding of social media and, and the PLN and learning from amazing leaders like yourself and yeah we would have never crossed paths without social media and i consider you a mentor of mine and i love our conversations i have learned so much from you um, as a leader as a human being so evan i i'm honored that you have been on the podcast as many times as you have and for my listeners if you haven't listened to the previous episodes that evan's been on please make sure you do that um, I, I promise you you're going to get great value from listening to those episodes and evan thank you so much again, for being on the Aspire podcast. Well, I appreciate being on the podcast. And, you know, as someone who's been in the business for 30 years, uh, it makes me feel really good about uh, potentially looking at opportunities after being education, knowing that there are people like you who um, are so well-grounded philosophically and so committed to education uh, to carry things on. Um, it's a pleasure. I'm always connecting with you, Josh.